Welcome to the RevDem podcast. My name is Ferenc Lotso, and today I have the pleasure to host Mira Siegelberg. Welcome to the show, Mira, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Great to speak to you. Mira Siegelberg is a university lecturer in the history of international political thought at the University of Cambridge. She received her PhD in history from Harvard back in 2014 and was previously employed as a lecturer in history and law at the Queen Mary campus of the University of London. Mira's research focuses on the intellectual and legal history of international order and the history of modern legal thought. We are here today to discuss Mira Siegelberg's first book titled Statelessness, A Modern History, which was published by Harvard UP in 2020 and has just been awarded the Bentley Book Prize of the World History Association. Congratulations on that, Mira. That's a truly wonderful achievement. Thanks so much. And let us perhaps begin our conversation with uh, some of the basics. Uh, could you tell me a bit about some of the competing ways to understand the concept of statelessness? And how would you sketch a brief history of statelessness? What are, what are some of the key moments uh, in the narrative you develop in the book? So I, I think it's actually important to appreciate how intrinsically multifarious the meaning of the term statelessness is and that it is used in a variety of ways. It's a concept that evokes different kinds of political and legal states of being such as individuals without citizenship, groups that aspire to, a state, to obtain a state of their own, but also in various individual and collective forms of dispossession, exclusion, exile. And I would also say that the concept intuitively retains a connection to ideas about interstate order and its associated ambiguities, the conditions of belonging, who gets to claim statehood, and whether the state is actually the best political structure for responding to crises that are not limited to the boundary of any one political community. But statelessness is also a constrained legal concept. It's a concept that's defined in two main international agreements that were created after the Second World War, which limit the meaning that being a stateless person implies that you do not have a national status nationality being a kind of membership that marks the outward face of the state's power and its authority. And in international law, being categorized as a stateless person is different from being categorized as a refugee, someone who's forced to flee as a result of persecution. And so one could try to write a history of the concept of statelessness in its wider, more varied sense. And one Russian Jewish legal scholar who features in the book named Mark Vishniak suggests in a, in a 1930 study on the legal status of stateless persons that beyond the legal particulars, statelessness is really a condition of basic exclusion and dispossession. And that if you were to write the history it would be traced back in a more philosophical way to the story of Genesis of God casting Adam and Eve out of Eden. But if we think about it in perhaps more properly historical terms, it's really only following the First World War that mass numbers of people without the security of political membership enter into international politics at a new scale. And this is a fact that's marked in language, in English, in French and Italian and German, which begin to 
develop new vocabulary to describe people without a national status. And though I look at some moments before the First World War and before the 20th century when such individuals were discussed in relation to ideas about international order and international politics, I wanted to understand how statelessness had been framed as a particular kind of international phenomenon, beginning really in the period after the First World War, and how this framing then changed over time. And I did this as a way of approaching the larger history of the big questions about global political order that many people may already automatically reference when they encounter the term statelessness. And so there are really two main linked stories that run through the book. The first is about the eventual stabilization of the conceptual boundaries of states and what the legal frameworks that were established after World War II reveal about the ideological basis of the post-war international political settlement. And the second is about how membership in a country has been defined in international law and why changing ideas about law and its relationship to politics is pivotal to this history. So the book really pivots around these two central moments in the formation of modern international order, the period after World War I, when statelessness is first taken up as an object of intensive intellectual and political scrutiny, but um, most centrally around the League of Nations, and we can discuss that. And then after World War II and the legal frameworks that define what it means to be a stateless person, or in contrast to the stateless person, a refugee, to be the subject of particular regimes of rights and governance and when that took shape. But I also touch in the narrative on court cases in which the meaning and significance of statelessness is adjudicated, diplomatic conferences that seek to regulate how states set the terms of national membership, and moments of intellectual debate and reflection on the implications of statelessness as a new kind of political reality for broader understandings of politics and the foundations of political order. Wonderful. There's really a lot uh, to unpack there. Your history of statelessness raises major questions regarding how states organize themselves, how they define their boundaries, and how they relate uh, to each other. Now, you approach this history in a way to reflect on a host of such fundamental issues. So would you mind speaking to the question how the history of statelessness might help us develop new perspectives on the 20th century and the creation of the post-war international order more specifically? What original insights does such a special prism, the history of statelessness, yield uh, in these respects? So the, the emergence of statelessness as a mass phenomenon in the 20th century has, I think, most typically been understood as important historically, not least because it was seen to expose a central tension of the post-war, post-Second World War international order. The contradiction or perceived contradiction between the principle of state sovereignty as the basis of global order and the emergence of new norms of human rights that seem to have established the rights of individuals even in the absence of citizenship. So that was one way of thinking about statelessness in relation to the post-war order. But if we adopt the perspective found in much of the newer scholarship, historical scholarship on the transformation 
from a world dominated by imperial power to one that, at least formally speaking, was governed by the norm of sovereign equality. And it, these historical works point to the recentness of a world ordered by states. Then the history of statelessness invites new insights about the nature of the post-war international order that isn't reducible to this tension between the sovereign rights of states on the one hand and the human rights of individual persons on the other. Instead, it introduces a, a possibility of making sense of what, what that order really produced, what it created and what its legacies are. And that's one of the things that I've tried to make sense of in the book. And so when the stateless became a prominent feature of international politics after World War I, most of the world's people were living under some kind of imperial rule. And when the war finally ended, the question of questions about what the state was, who can claim statehood, how membership is determined and the meaning of nationality in the context of international relations, but also the future of empire and international authority were all the objects of intensive political conflict and struggle. And the stateless, what I, I try to show in the book became the touchstone for these fundamental, but also destabilizing political quandaries about the nature of democratic politics and the basis for political organization that emerged in the war's aftermath. So the status of stateless persons in international society was bound up, for example, with the question of, of what it means for a new state to come into being and the relationship of successor states to a former empire and the foundations of political community. And so the main puzzle that I try to work out is how the international political settlement after World War II ultimately neutralized statelessness as a problem that is fundamentally linked to the prospects of world order, and how in doing so, the conceptual, legal, and moral boundaries that continue to define international politics were established. So the first implication of looking at the history of statelessness as a prism, as you say, is that we see how the legal frameworks um, became a central part of the creation of international order, not a way to, to mitigate its consequences. The problem of statelessness, as it was defined by the post-war agreements, became quite marginal, a much smaller part of the larger international regime of refugee protection and oversight that until fairly recently has been neglected by lawyers, political theorists, and aid workers. But rather than seeing this marginalization in terms of the unwillingness of countries to assume responsibility for non-citizens within their borders, I look at how the legal frameworks shape the expectation that global political order consists of a largely stable set of political entities, states, and in the process, how it covered over the dynamic process of state dissolution and formation that did in fact make the creation of stateless people or non-citizens a significant feature of global politics. So the real question, I think, is how the post-war order stabilized or bracketed, which is a term I use in the book, the fundamental issues that, um, that, you've, that you've mentioned about um, and, and that we might think are, fund are intrinsically fundamental to the problem of statelessness, how states organize themselves, how they define their boundaries, how they relate to one another, and how the terms of arguments about the meaning of statelessness authorized a particular settlement that obscured the fact that the changing boundaries of global order in the second half of the 20th century 
were profoundly connected to forced migration and the proliferation of stateless people. So in the book, I link the broad turn in the post-war era to conceptualizing law as fundamentally political and instrumental and as reflective of social reality rather than as a way to shape politics and society to this marginalization of statelessness. Um, it's marginalization as a problem intrinsically connected to the problem of collective political organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Again, I was very intrigued by the approach you use in the book and the kind of history you write. Your book may certainly be viewed as a contribution to international political thought, right? That's also, of course, uh, in your job uh, title uh, in, in, at Cambridge. Uh, but obviously, you also draw uh, quite significantly on political philosophy, on legal theory, on intellectual and conceptual history, and a number of other uh, approaches. You're, you're clearly a very versatile scholar, and you also use diverse sources uh, in the book and employ a variety of, of, of methods uh, to study them. So I was wondering whether you would perhaps be willing to discuss how you see your book uh, in relation to trends, recent and ongoing trends in the writing of international political thought. Uh, and are there perhaps authors uh, whom your book engages with in a more direct uh, dialogue and whom you would uh, perhaps like to highlight here? So I think maybe I should start by, by just noting that the study of international political thought, at least in its most recent guise, can really be traced to a moment when scholars across the social sciences saw a need to revisit and challenge the dominant representations of international politics. So new studies of the history of empires, of international law and global order, motivated a reorientation in understanding the history of the concepts that up to that up to recently have defined the domain of the international concepts such as the state the state system international law and as the historian david armitage has discussed the historical origins of the the distinction that we make between matters that are domestic and those that are international now some of this work has involved looking with fresh eyes at theorists that have long been part of a canon of political thought and reinterpreting these texts in light of novel historical perspectives on the recentness of a world dominated by states and the imperial origins of international law. While other scholarship in this broad field advocates a more expansive sense of what kinds of actors and institutions should count as the subjects of international political thought and looks at professional international lawyers, bureaucrats, administrators, policy intellectuals, and other figures that perhaps not, have not been traditional to the study of political thought per se. And so my research, kind of broadly conceived, has sought to expand the range of actors, institutions, and discourses that we study in order to understand the conceptual intellectual and institutional formation of, the, of modern international order. And I've been particularly interested in the history of legal thought and in debates about the nature of law and in thinking about why debates among political, among legal philosophers rather and jurists are actually critical to the study of international political thought and to the history of international order. 
But my main methodological claim really is um, in the book isn't doesn't concern the the subjects of international political thought per se, although that's kind of an implicit dimension of the method, but the relationship between this broad area of study and the dynamics of international and global history. So in the book, I argue that in order to understand, to make sense of how the boundaries of international order were stabilized after the Second World War, we have to appreciate the intellectual justifications that reframe the problem of statelessness as a moral problem for states to solve due to its effects on the individual, rather than as a problem of world order as such. Writing the history of statelessness also meant connecting bodies of thought not generally brought together, reading systematic critical reflections by legal scholars and political theorists, together with sources from the more traditional archives of international and diplomatic history, but also reading these sources alongside uh, texts from court cases, letters and petitions from stateless people to international organizations, as well as works of fiction and memoir to try to illuminate the meaning of statelessness in international legal, administrative and, and popular thought. But one point of dialogue that I think is worth mentioning in relation to this more methodological point um, is with the historians of global and global political and legal order who've argued that systematic intellectual reflection on international politics or interpolitical order, which is another term that these scholars use, may codify existing practices of social and political activity, but they're not the determinants of global norms and expectations and practices. So two of the inspiring works that I had in mind in developing my own argument were um, a work by, by the historian Will Hanley, which is a study about how ordinary people in the late Ottoman Empire began to identify with nationality. Um, and just as an example of the kind of, the kind of new work that I, um, that I do engage with, and you can kind of read it through the footnotes, um, I also thought quite a bit about the argument that we find in Lauren Benton and Lisa Ford's book, A Rage for Order, on the administrative origins of international law in the early 19th century British Empire. And that international law needs to be understood as arising from administrative concerns and practices rather than in out of metropole discourses about the principles that govern the legal relations between states. So my approach to the history of statelessness has allowed me to, to think a bit more deeply about the role of ideas, arguments, and justifications in the formation of the law and the institutions that govern the relationship between states and their nationals. So the goal of the work is historical explanation to make sense of what happened and why it happened and how it happened, but also in keeping with a maybe traditional motivation in the study of the history of political thought to recover some conceptual and normative resources to subject the ideas and institutions that we've inherited to, to critical evaluation. 
Mm -hmm. Again, I, I wish to ask you uh, about what that critical evaluation uh, might mean in more specific terms and, and what its implications might be uh, today. But let's perhaps discuss a slightly different question first. Uh, when I was reading your book, I was struck by the fact that uh, you provide a really new understanding of the international order that was created after the Second World War uh, how, and how the debate uh, about statelessness was first uh, stabilized. And again, as you argue, increasingly marginalized. Those are points we have already uh, discussed in our conversation today. But then your book also emphasizes uh, developments uh, beforehand, right? Some of the key actors uh, on the pages of this book are in fact uh, emigres who had to flee uh, the Bolshevik uh, revolution in 1917 and others who experienced uh, the Habsburg uh, collapse uh, in 1918. You, you know, you may say that your book indeed has quite a prominent uh, focus on Central uh, and Eastern Europe, uh, uh, part of the world that is, of course, very uh, dear to us here at the Central European University. And so I was wondering whether you, you would mind discussing a bit more how the consequences of the Bolshevik Revolution on the one hand and the Habsburg uh, collapse on the other shaped uh, the key ideas of such uh, protagonists, uh, some such protagonists uh, in uh, statelessness, right? And again, more generally, what impact did these two seminal uh, events uh, towards the end uh, of World War I uh, come to exert and why were they so consequential when it comes to the history of statelessness? So um, the Bolshevik revolution and the collapse of the Habsburg empire both do feature quite prominently in the book. Both were events that greatly contributed to the new numbers of people in the interwar period that began to be defined and to define themselves as stateless persons. Um, in the case of people who fled the former Russian empire during or immediately following the Bolshevik revolution, the League of Nations actually established a new organization, the High Commission for Refugees, to provide innovative legal identification and some limited protection for people who were designated as part of this group. And these individuals became eligible for something called the Nansen passport that in theory allowed people without the security of national citizenship, without a passport to cross borders and to potentially find work, which was a, a major issue um, in the decade after the First World War. In contrast, the formation of new successor states out of the former Habsburg Empire in Central Europe um, excluded a great number of people from the new regimes of citizenship in these new states, but the League did not extend international identification and, 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 and protection to these individuals. And this group became the object of um, an international campaign to extend international protections to uh, stateless people in the, in the successor state. And um, they were often described as the, the Heimatlosen um, rather than by the, the newer terms that were being articulated to describe stateless persons like stateless or Staatenlos. Um, Heimatlos is a, an, older, an older term. And so jurists from both from the former Habsburg empire and the former Russian empire became some of the most prominent figures to confront the consequences of imperial dissolution in the 20th century. And these individuals produced 
some of the most pivotal theoretical and legal sources on statelessness. And so some of these people that I talk about in the book, I mentioned Mark Vishniak, um, another uh, legal scholars, Andrei Mandelstam, Boris Mirkin Gutsevich, who are from the Russian empire. And in the Habsburg context, I focus particularly on the Austrian jurist Hans Kelsen and his students. Now, the biographies of these figures, I think, is quite historically significant, not just because they were personally affected by revolution and imperial collapse. All of these figures were eventually forced to leave Europe and faced statelessness themselves, but also because of how they brought their earlier approaches to understanding the state, law, as well as non-state forms of political organization and order that were nurtured in these earlier imperial contexts. And they brought these, this, this kind of knowledge and practice to bear when they were interpreting the meaning of this new mass phenomenon of statelessness in the interwar period and in thinking about how to advocate for these populations. So Mark Vishniak, for example, whose legal treatise I mentioned before, had been a revolutionary democratic socialist who drew on his experience with non-state forms of democratic association that were developed during the 1905 revolution in Russia to envision the possibility of political representation and political status for the stateless after World War I. The post-Habsburg imperial context, as you say, the Central European context carries particular weight in the book because it was in this setting that Kelsen and his students, who are also known as the Vienna School of Law, developed an important approach to this phenomenon that ultimately reverber reverberated across the 20th century. They applied a very particular theoretical perspective on law and the state to interpret the legal boundaries of citizenship in the successor states. And in doing so, they sought to clarify the intrinsic connection that they saw between the national status of post-imperial subjects and urgent debates that were staged after World War I about the meaning of sovereignty and the boundaries of international law. And so the, the, this historical and biographical and um, the context of place is, is critical and it's, it's critical to the story and it's fascinating. Um, and I, I wouldn't want to minimize it at all. But I think it's also important to, to just say that in the context of the larger narrative and argument of the book about how a bigger transformation of legal consciousness in the 20th century that is not limited to, um, to the, the Russian or Central European context, how that transformation shaped the, the post-war legal frameworks and in that sense, the imperial biographies of these figures is less significant than the fact that they brought a particularly legalistic approach to politics um, that may have taken particular forms in the Habsburg Empire, the, the, the post-Habsburg Empire, imperial successor states, and in the Russian Empire, and that they brought this legalistic approach to analyze the significance of statelessness in relation to international order. And I'm, I'm trying to show how this perspective was eventually eclipsed as skepticism about the power of legal analysis to construct and organize collective life took hold. Um, 
And it is the skepticism that illuminates how nationality and statelessness were eventually recast in the post-war world. Great, great. You have already alluded to the uh, contemporary stakes of your argument slightly earlier. And I wished us to uh, return to that, uh, to discuss uh, the book in, in that uh, context, in the context of today, what the uh, interpretation you provide uh, in the book may be linked to ongoing debates, whether about environmental threats or uh, mass migration. Uh, you mentioned that uh, your book may be read as an archive of uh, precedents. So I was wondering how you would describe the contemporary relevance uh, of your subject. and. And more specifically, how do you see the relationship between your scholarship and recent works on the refugee question or the issue of cosmopolitanism? Is there some kind of specific debate you wished to relaunch with the publication of statelessness, perhaps? So one feature, I think, of the post-World War II international settlement that I try to illuminate is how the international framing of the problem of statelessness through the refugee and statelessness conventions encourage a particular perspective on the tension between national sovereignty and the rights of those without citizenship. Now, political theorists and international lawyers who look to these legal precedents, to the frameworks that we have, often emphasize the contradiction between cosmopolitan obligations to people beyond the borders of given countries and obligations that societies have to ensuring rights or social rights to their own citizens. Now, against this stylized distinction, and I'm not trying to minimize the importance of thinking about the, the tension between um, cosmopolitanism and a more robust way of thinking about social citizenship, in the book, I try to reconstruct the historical process that successfully neutralized and obscured what is really an, an inevitably dynamic political relationship between states and the people who exist beyond their borders or those who are within their borders but without the rights of citizenship. So I'm really concerned with the institutional conditions that set limits on our political, moral, and legal imagination and in reframing the way we think about the problem of refugees, the crisis of refugees and stateless persons today um, in this narrower binary frame of kind of the tension between cosmopolitanism on the one hand and social citizenship on the other. Now, tracing the history of statelessness in the way that I do in the book as an object of intellectual reflection and international political activity reveals, as I touched on before how bound up the stateless were in the aftermath of the First World War with the essential and ultimately destabilizing uncertainties surrounding the meaning of sovereignty and um, agency or legal personality in international society, as well as debates about the basis of international legal order. And the change that occurs over the course of the two world wars should be explained not only through diplomatic developments that constrain the meaning of statelessness for international affairs, but also as a result of a broader transformation of legal thought that ultimately detaches nationality and its absence from these fundamental questions surrounding the basis of political and social order. 
Now, I'm not, I don't think we can, or we should go backwards or that this is kind of a, a simplistic precedent that we can kind of reach for. Um, I don't think we should be trying to recover the specific forms of legal thought about personhood or the conditions that enabled a certain perspective on the creative power of juristic creations. But what I want to show, or I want to kind of um, introduce is, is how we should be thinking about how the post-war settlement continues to shape normative and political responses to contemporary crises surrounding forced migration and dispossession broadly understood. So Hannah Arendt is um, very frequently cited for her insights about the plight of statelessness in a world of states, that in the absence of citizenship rights, claims about the rights of people as human beings are, are, are not particularly meaningful. And the implication of this insight um, is that there, or the implication that Arendt drew from this insight is that there should be one basic rule of global order, that everyone should have the right to membership somewhere. But when we read her interventions, her writings on the subject of statelessness against the background of the longer history of critical reflection on this phenomenon and on international order, then we see more clearly how her thought helps us elucidate a critical distinction that I'm trying to establish in the book between governments agreeing to prevent occurrences of statelessness because of its collective, collective impact due to the structure of international order and international agreements that are premised on the idea that statelessness represents a kind of deprivation for individuals that states shouldn't countenance due to its negative impact on particular people. Now, I don't think these kinds of arguments are necessarily incompatible and you could be moved by both kinds of claims, but I'm trying to show how as a matter of historical explanation, the weight that was placed on the second justification in post-war debates and in national legal forums about the regulation of nationality, how it worked to undermine the, the force of that first claim about world order. And the result was to make statelessness marginal to international politics. The alternative that Arendt is proposing, Arendt and others were proposing in, in theorizing statelessness after World War II is to comprehend it as inextricable from order and collective security, that it is a problem of political organization, which I think is a position that resonates with the impending mass migration spurred by the climate crisis. Um, and thinking about this crisis as urgent, not just as a matter of, of moral obligation to the stranger, although one could also think about it in that way, but as a condition of global order and collective security. And that if there is a kind of major precedent um, or a kind of archive, I think it's in recovering this way of thinking about a a collective problem that um, I think intuitively already exists, but we, we also have um, legal frameworks and institutions that have narrowed and set up a way of thinking about displacement, refugees, stateless persons that um, I do think we need to consider critically whether they're working, um, what their limitations are, and, and how they continue to frame um, or limit the way we think about the possibilities of, of global organization.
Great. Uh, thank you so much, Mira, for all these uh, thorough answers and all your great insights. They have really uh, deepened my own understanding of the key arguments of your book uh, and its context. Thank you so much for, for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, again, I had the pleasure of talking to uh, Mira Siegelberg today, whose groundbreaking uh, new book is called Statelessness, A Modern History. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next time.